Well, we're continuing our little uh, study that we're doing through the summer on, uh, call it Hermogesis. It's actually practical exegesis, but uh, last week we did a little study of history on kind of how we got to and and the effects of the Reformation on biblical interpretation and talked a little bit about the five solas and how one of them is sola scriptura, where the Scripture alone is the authority for the believer. And uh, I made mention of Martin Luther's uh, famous or infamous quote uh, during his trial at the Diet of Worms in 1521, where he was brought uh, to a heresy trial, essentially dealing with the things that he had written to that point. Uh, And as he Uh, was asked to recant of those uh, teachings, which were primarily biblical interpretation and the gospel uh, restored, uh, he made this statement. He said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to do so goes against conscience. It is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. Amen. There's some question as to the here I stand part, but the rest of it is is uh, pretty much attested to. Um, it's a textual variant. Yeah, it's a textual variant. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's kind of a... a uh, non-textual part of the uh, oral history of the Reformation. (laughs) So, uh, this morning uh, we want to move along and look at uh, where the believer goes once we understand that it is the responsibility of the believer to rightly interpret scripture, not simply to interpret according to our whims or whatever we wish, but to rightly interpret scripture. And that really comes down to the the idea of do we do we simply interpret scripture subjectively or should we interpret it objectively? And of course, uh, we would say the reformers would say uh, the scripture itself says we should interpret objectively what is in the scripture reading out of exegesis rather than eisegesis, which is reading into the scripture what we would like for it to say, which we're all prone to do. Um, This tradition, and and we talked a little bit last week about the difference between hermeneutics and exegesis, and there... Uh, there are some schools of thought today that basically say ah, they're essentially the same thing, but um, there are some nuances there in that uh, I, I kind of use the example of um, the computer program. Uh, the computer program that is written um, is the, the rules for interpreting or, or using the data that's given to the computer. Um, that you could think about kind of like hermeneutics. Those, that, that's the rules of interpretation. 
uh, exegesis, you can think about hermeneutics applied. In other words, it's the instantiation, if you will, or the running of the hermeneutic uh, as you you exegete that material from the the scripture, the data from the scripture, the information from the scripture. So, and we'll be using those definitions, uh, those rather loose definitions of exegesis and hermeneutics as we continue through our study here. Now, historically, uh, this isn't something new with the reformers that they just one day said, you know, I think this needs to be the way we interpret scripture. Uh, originally, it was the way scripture had been interpreted Many, many years, a millennia before, uh, and it's really part of what's called the Jewish tradition of exegesis. And this is uh, it goes way, way back um, to you've probably heard the terms Midrash and Mishnah uh, and Barita, those things. Those are all. Uh, having to do with the exegesis of scripture. Some of those things, like the, the Mishnah, is, the, is really the written commentary collected uh, about the Torah. And that information, there's variants of that. Some of, of those come out of, of the Babylonian captivity uh, and have different names. Some of those um, are supplemental. There's one called the Tosfeta, I think it is called Tosfeta that is a supplemental or addition to the, to the Mishnah. And so these rules of exegesis that, that, that the Jewish rabbis had essentially contained the idea of Scripture interpreting Scripture. So this idea was not brand new to the Reformation, but it was new in the sense that it had been lost for many, many years because there was this very strange fourfold interpretive process that was very convoluted that each passage of Scripture had four different meanings. And we'll talk a little bit about those later as we, as we look at, at individual passages and stuff. But uh, to say the least, Everybody had their own way of interpreting, and, and because the church was the interpreter, uh, they would essentially interpret and argue among the bishops as to what the right ones were, and then the church would deliver that to the congregation, uh, to the rest of the church, to the bishops, and then that would go down to, to the monks uh, and then the individual friars that were working among the people. So... Uh, there was a consideration during the Reformation of how can Scripture be interpreted rightly and clearly, and is it understandable? And, and across the board, as we said last week, the Reformers resoundingly said, yes, there is one interpretation which is correct for each passage of Scripture, and that is in the context of the passage of the book that it's written in and of the whole. And there may be thousands of applications of that scripture, and that's what we see, particularly when we look at preaching the word, uh, and particularly as you're looking at uh, passages that have 
uh, very specific applied theology there. You can have a lot of different passages or a lot of different meanings. I'm sorry, a lot of different applications, but a single meaning to the passage. And so uh, R.C. Sproul talks about one of the uh, professors that he had. I don't remember. I think it was in seminary in Philadelphia where he said that they uh, he would come in and give them a passage of scripture and said, now go home tonight and come back with 50 applications. And so they would go home and come back the next day with 50 applications of the scripture. And the next day, he would say, take that same passage of scripture, go home, bring me 50 more. Mm-hmm. And then, so he, he was he, he was trying to get across to them that there are, are you know, m- multiple application to a passage of scripture, but the meaning remains the same. And that's what we see not only in interpreting scripture, but in the very canon of scripture. Okay. Now, what is the canon of scripture? And it's, it's spelled C-A-N-O-N, which essentially just means a standard or a rule or uh, uh, the boundaries of something. Okay. This is uh, it's kind of like the idea in engineering we talk about accuracy and precision. You can have something that's very, very precise, but not necessarily accurate. Okay? You can have a reading that has all these data points very close together. Uh, it's like shooting at a target, and all of your, uh, all of your rounds go in a, an area you know, three, in three inches, but it might be three feet from the target. Okay, accuracy means that the standard is met. And in the canon, it's the same thing. And this idea of the canon, we think about the Bible as being a book, but it's really a library. It's a collection of books. And this collection of books spans almost 1,600 years of being written. Uh, you know, in reality, we have 66 individual books, uh, 65. Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book, but uh, which is a big argument even yeah. within Jewish circles. But uh, anyway, we have 66 books in this library, and the term canon uh, is applied here because we want to talk about accuracy or a standard by which it is measured. Historically, uh, the Bible was the authoritative rule for life, for faith and practice within the church. And then uh, there came a time when the, the difference between what the early church and ultimately what the reformers came back to and what the Roman Catholic Church essentially uh, looked at and said there are really, you know, uh, two uh, authoritative bodies here: the body of Scripture and the body of the Church. And the body of the Church in the hierarchy uh, has precedence. In other words, uh, we make the rules, how it's interpreted. Okay. And the reformer said, "Wait a second, that that's not what we see here in Scripture." Um, there's not always been a uh, complete agreement. Now, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church agree on the New Testament books completely. No, no question there. 
the Old Testament books, there is a question because the Roman Catholic Bible uh, actually includes some of what are called the Apocrypha, which are the books, some of which are written primarily during the intertestamental period, that 450 years between uh, Micah and Matthew. Uh, there were a lot of other books written. It's pretty cool books, but not what we would consider canonical or or belonging to the word. Okay, uh, It's interesting that uh, the, the Palestinian uh, canon did not include either in the Greek or the Hebrew the Apocrypha. Uh, and that's where the reformers came down as well. They said, uh, these don't meet the standard. These don't meet the canon of Scripture. And really, the early church essentially said the same thing. Said, these books do not meet what we would call a stand, the standard uh, by which they should be included in the Word. Um, you know, Michael, mm-hmm. you know, do they, so when, before, out, up to the Reformation, did they still include, their Bible still include, even though those early church, uh, the early church says they don't belong, they, all the way up until the Reformation, they still include the Apocrypha? They did. They still do. Yeah, I know in yeah. the Catholic Church, but I didn't know. Yeah. That's good. I just didn't yeah. realize when they. Yeah, um, they were included uh, about the, the first inclusion that I could find that was a legitimate. There's some earlier ones that are questionable, but but was Gregory? Gregory was about the first pope that basically decreed the inclusion of apocrypha in uh, the as part of the Old Testament. Um, there were others who believed it belonged there, but it wasn't from the chair. So uh, that was the first. Okay. Um, the, but the original canon um, came about as most of the councils that met, met because these ecumenical councils where we get things like the Apostles' Creed, and the Nicene Creed, Chalcedon, these councils which are called ecumenical councils because they included most of the entire church in the Mediterranean world and beyond, actually. Uh, There are uh, questions that came up of doctrine and severe questions of doctrine. Uh, Heretics who were preaching things against the apostles' doctrine were essentially what caused these councils to respond and to then write a document that stated what orthodoxy uh, according to Scripture was. In other words, these guys didn't just come in and gather together and say, okay, let's vote on, do you think Marcion is a heretic? Everybody who thinks he's a heretic say yes, everybody, okay. They basically said there's a problem here. Marcion, this fella comes in, who, who was this sort of pseudo-Gnostic fella who came in, and he didn't like the God of the Old Testament. He, he, was, what, he, he was too mean. So he liked Jesus, okay, well, most of the things Jesus did. So he basically went in and cut and pasted Scripture. And by the time he got done, there was quite a lot of the New Testament left, Pretty much nothing of the Old Testament left. 
and a lot of holes in the New Testament as well. And so there had to be some response to this. And before that, there was no real, quote, listing or standard of what is in Scripture. The churches had the letters of Paul. They had the letters of Peter. They had the Gospels. They had all of these things passed around and copied. Remember, Gutenberg wasn't on the scene yet, so there was no you know, high-tech copying going on yet. It all had to be done by hand. People were illiterate, so they had to either memorize things, which was done quite often. Uh, part of, uh, for instance, uh, in the early history of the church in the second century, to become a deacon in the church, uh, you actually had to memorize, memorize in Greek from the Septuagint the, the Old Testament, the, the um, um, basically the five books of the law, the Pentateuch, uh, the Torah, uh, and you had to memorize the book of Acts and one of the Gospels. You had to memorize that. Okay? So it, it wasn't trivial. But part of the reason for that is people couldn't read and write. So when you would get a copy of the letters from Paul or from Peter or, or whomever, um, sections of those would be given to people to memorize and or to copy. And so many of the extant copies of the New Testament, those 17,000 copies and fragments of the New Testament that we have that we look at today, Many of those come from people in the churches who had copied copies of the letters, copies of the Gospels in the New Testament, uh, which is essentially what the Dead Sea Scrolls were. Those were copies by scribes, in primarily in the Essene community at Qumran, that were, were copied and stored uh, away, actually hidden for persecution reasons. But uh, essentially, that's why we have such good texts to look at today is because people memorized and copied down the, the letters and the Gospels and, and the New Testament, essentially. So what is this, this uh, uh, canon? What did, what did they end up with? Well, they essentially ended up with everything that we have in the New Testament. Um, early on, there were questions about Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, Jude, and Revelation. There were questions about those. They were eventually included, but there were early questions about those. Um, in fact, as late as the Reformation, James, or, uh, um, Luther didn't accept James as canonical. He eventually did, but he was he was mad at what James wrote. He didn't think it was, it was in line with the rest of Scripture, so he kind of booted it out for a while. And he wasn't really he wasn't really um, he wasn't really sure about Second Peter. He he accepted it, but he questioned Second Peter uh, early on. But 
finally he, he came to the point where he said, yeah, I, all, everything that's in the New Testament should be there. So um, there were, uh, what, three books? Three books that were included early on as possible candidates to go in the New Testament that were not put in. And that was First Clement and the Shepherd of Hermas and the Didache. And um, fortunately, the authors of those were Orthodox and they were still living and at the time. No. What's that? And they said no. Yeah, and they said, although they're in line with apostolic doctrine, they should not be included, and these are the reasons why. So those things were not included in the New Testament. For, if you read, you'll see. If you read, you can read them in there. They are doctrinally pretty sound, um, but like the Didache, it's got a lot of repetition of stuff that is just like superfluous. It's interesting, and but some of it's really weird to try to understand, not from a a biblical standpoint, but from just a language, the, the way the language is used, it's odd. Um, and actually, the Didache was written for people coming into the church to quickly understand current uh, understanding and interpretation of doctrine. So it's more of an inter- interpretive work than actually doctrine itself. So uh, it would be kind of like a commentary today. Um, so once this canon was established in council and and there really became three as we get to the 20th century there really became a a, a split in three views of uh, what the canon is and what authority it has and those three views are really the Roman Catholic view and the Protestant view. And then there's what's called the liberal critical view. And that didn't really appear until the mid-19th century with Schleiermacher and Wellhausen and those guys. So, um, And essentially, this is the, the breakdown of those. The canon for the Roman Catholic view, the canon is an infallible collection of infallible books, okay? And the classical Protestant view is the canon is a fallible collection of infallible books, whereas the critical liberal view is the canon is a fallible collection of fallible books, okay? Those sound trivial, but they're really not, because essentially the Roman Catholic Church basically says what we says goes, what we say goes, and uh, that's the end of the discussion. Okay, the the Protestant view says this is a fallible collection of books because it, it was essentially received by the church uh, by men into into the church. I hope everybody's all right there. Um, uh, but the but the documents in and of themselves are infallible. And we'll talk about infallibility in that at a, at a later point, but why we believe those things. But those, those are really the three primary views. There's a hierarchy of authority with the Catholic Church. The Church gives the Scripture to the people. 
Okay, the Protestant view is essentially the church receives the scripture into the church as authoritative. It doesn't uh, create the canon. It receives the canon. Okay, and. We won't, even, we won't even talk about the liberal curriculum view anymore, really, until we get to higher criticism, because it really doesn't, you know, here or there. So what criteria were used to accept canonical books into this canon of Scripture? What What is the... Um, What is the standard? What is the canon itself? Okay, and, and this is uh, both the Protestant view post-Reformation, and it was the view of the councils pre-Reformation, pre-Roman Catholic uh, uh, degradation of, <laughs> uh, of the uh, Scripture's uh, authority. Um, so these are sometimes called the marks of canonicity. Um, or the mark of evaluated canonicity within the um, within the acceptance of the scripture. So the difference is receiving or creating. That's really all you need to remember. Did the church create the canon, or did the church receive the canon? Protestants say we received the canon. The Roman Catholic Church says we created the canon. Okay, but it's infallible. And it's infallible because we said so. <laughs> so this criteria that was used uh, has been accepted by, strangely enough, by most modern Roman Catholics as well as Protestants. Uh, part of this was reiterated at Trent post-Reformation. So... Number one, to be to be received into the canon, a book must have apostolic authorship or endorsement. In other words, it must have been written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle. Uh, for instance, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Why would we? Receive those into the canon. They're not apostolic. He was a companion of Paul. He was a companion of Paul, and and the both the council in Jerusalem and Paul himself accepted the work as being apostolic in doctrine. That's why the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts were accepted into the canon because they had apostolic endorsement, not because Luke was an apostle. Okay, the second, is there any questions on that? Are there any questions on that? Do you have a question? I just wanted to clarify that. So it was accepted into the canon because there was the apostolic endorsement. It didn't have to be the apostle. Right. It, either, it was either apostolic authorship or apostolic endorsement. Okay. okay. Yeah. And strangely enough, First uh, Clement and the the uh, uh, shepherd of Hermas, both those both had uh, I believe it was First Clement 
and there was another book that was not accepted for other reasons, but were actually accepted by Polycarp, who was the protege of the Apostle John. And so that was one reason they were considered possible canonical books. But again, fortunately, the authors were still living, so uh, they were they were rejected. Did that answer your question? Yes. Um, the second point is they also must, and these are all ands. Number one, they must have apostolic authorship or endorsement. And they must have, have received authority, be received authoritatively by the early church. Okay? Again, this was another reason why First Clement and Shepherd of Hermas and Didache were accepted uh, as possible canonical candidates because they were accepted by the early church. When they passed all these things around, all of the pastors, all of the, uh, Called, they, were, they were called bishops, they were pastors, but they were the bishops of the, those churches um, were accepting of, the elders were all accepting of those on a doctrinal basis as being apostolic. So they were received by the early church, they were considered authoritative by the early church, that was the second point. If they had authorship or, or they were endorsed and they were accepted by the early church, those were two of the three, three points. The third point is probably the, uh, the necessary parentheses on uh, acceptance of canonicity, okay? And that is they must be in harmony with the books about which there is no doubt. In other words, the Old Testament, we knew there was no question on the Old Testament. That was described to by, by Christ, uh, by the apostles. It was accepted by the early church. There was no question at all, both in the Hebrew form, the Aramaic form, and in the Septuagint form in the Greek. It was there, absolutely no question. That was scripture. Okay. So if it was in, in agreement with the Old Testament, for instance, on the, the Messianic passages that were in the New Testament, it was accepted. Okay. Um, Could you restate that one again? That's, that's yeah. The, the, the candidates for canonicity, they had to be in harmony with the books about which there wasn't any doubt that they belonged in Scripture. Okay. Now, there were other books, for instance... Um, the reason they got questioned, be, not only because uh, of apostolic authorship, but as late as the Reformation, for instance, the reason that uh, Luther didn't accept the book of James is he thought it was in conflict with the book of Romans, which there was no question about. Okay, so he was basically saying, you know, I don't think this is in harmony with the rest of Scripture. And that was one of the big reasons why, to begin with, it was questioned as well. Is it appeared to not be in harmony with what was known to be Scripture, and there was no question about. And so it was like, you now is James, should we even be considering this? So there was lengthy 
looking in the Old Testament, looking at, at the book of Romans and saying, really, okay, this is an interpretive question and a contextual question, not a doctrinal uh, uh, contradiction here. So that's what was uh, ultimately decided uh, in late second century and early in the third century, and then again in the in the sixteenth century. Do you think that uh, Luther's question about James has primarily to do with his discussion with James? Unjust. Yeah, we know that's what it was. Yeah, period. If that verse hadn't been in there, he would have accepted James. <laughs> yeah, we know. He, he, yep, he called it the epistle of straw. There was no, no, no question in his mind early on. That, that was not a good book. So. It's interesting that that late he would be questioning canonicity. Well, the whole question, because of the Apocrypha inclusion... And because of the rejection and question early on, you have to remember, and we talked about this, I think, last week, is by the time, by the time Luther became a doctor in theology, he never read the Bible. Hmm. I mean, the Bible was chained to a pulpit, if they even had a Bible, and most monks, by the time, by the, by the 16th century, Many monks, particularly the friars, who were the monks who were out among the people, couldn't read or write. They were completely uneducated. Many of them simply became monks because they didn't want to starve to death. <laughs> okay? So, uh, and, and the immorality that was rampant in Rome, the, the church was in a, in a horrible state, and most of the clergy were politically minded rather than theologically minded. Even when you get to the bishops, many of the bishops in Rome were uneducated. They were very astute politically, but they were not educated and they had not read scripture. Mm -hmm. And that's why this recovery of sola scriptura was such a foundational doctrine within the church that caused such uh, a stir uh, because... For one, it questioned the power of the, of the of the Roman Catholic hierarchy. In another, it essentially said it's important that the people be able to read the scripture for themselves. Now, at this point in time, education, you, you have to remember that it was difficult to find anything to read uh, that the common person could read anyway, even if they knew how. Um, because it had to be hand copied, but about a hundred years before this, what was it, sixty-five or seventy years before this, Gutenberg had invented his movable type press, and so people were getting more comfortable with copies in multiplicity of these documents uh, that were flying around, and a lot of them were coming out of the, out of the uh, the uh, Vatican. Uh, many of them at this point were indulgences being sold. You get this official document, piece of paper that said, you know, you get grandma out of purgatory because you paid how many ducats or whatever. So, uh, so this was this was a a complete change in the culture because not only 
did people want to become educated to read at this point? And stuff was available to be to be read, and so it, it was becoming more common for common people to be educated during this period of time. <clears throat> Luther became educated uh, because his father was fairly well off. He was a miner, and he didn't want his son working in the mines. And he essentially said, you become a lawyer because you'll make lots of money, and kind of like it is today, you'll make lots of money, and you can do a lot of different things. And you, don't, you, won't, have, you won't be a miner. And if you do, <clears throat> you'll run the mine. You won't be working in it. So uh, that's the only reason he was able to go to school and become educated. And a lot of people were finding that happening because this whole feudal system in Europe was starting to collapse. And there, there became more widespread education both in the... Uh, both in, I, both in the uh, uh, higher ranks of society, uh, you had many of the people who were uh, staunch supporters of the Roman Catholic Church who were patrons of various monks and so forth um, who, who were now as well becoming educated themselves. And so... This was, you know, in God's providence, this was the time when the church was ready for reformation. And someone like Martin Luther and, and also, of course, John Calvin in France and then ultimately in, in, in Switzerland became um, pivotal uh, because they were saying the same thing. And they were saying... Scripture is authoritative. The things that, that the church is saying is running counter to Scripture, and the things that many of the councils have argued have been contradictory. And that is uh, kind of the, our, our next uh, section that we're going to talk about is is this idea when we when I quoted Luther uh, to begin with there, he he made a statement uh, about uh, unless I am convicted or convinced by scripture or by plain reason, and he said and plain reason. Okay, what does that mean? He, he wasn't using, he wasn't just throwing words out there. He very carefully thought about what he was saying. Uh, essentially, he's saying God doesn't contradict himself. Uh, and we see that many in these, in these councils, that, that particularly the recent councils that the Roman Catholic Church had had, these popes are coming out and saying stuff that is absolutely contradictory to one another. And it's not only contradictory to one another, it's contradictory to Scripture. And it obviously, according to evident reason or plain reason, he, 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 some, some translated as saying evident reason, essentially the same thing. Uh, when he uses the word, when the word's translated plain here, it doesn't mean 
like just your vanilla reasoning. It means it, it means clear reason. Okay. Um, and this evident reason, he says, because God does not contradict himself, scripture and reason will agree. Okay. Now, uh, we'll talk next week about what's the difference between when we're looking at, at reason, what's the difference between contradiction, paradox, and mystery? Those are all things we find in our lives every day, and also we find them in Scripture. So when we're talking about plain or evident reason, uh, the primary thing is we're looking for is does it contradict? Okay? And there's a big difference between contradiction, true contradiction, and apparent contradiction. There's a lot of things that are apparent contradiction that are really a paradox or a mystery. For instance, the Trinity. Okay? We don't understand it, but it's not against reason. It's not a contradiction in the formal sense. Okay? So, are there any questions that we have on what we've looked at today? And we will pick up with uh, contradiction, paradox, and mystery next week on interpretation. Thanks, guys.